Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on cagesidepress.com. I'm David Gibby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Well, the UFC is off this weekend. That's right, a weird off week for the UFC. We'll be back next weekend with a breakdown of UFC Vegas 56. But in the meantime, we are going to do one of our favorite segments, which is the Combat Countdown. We'll be breaking down our favorite what-ifs in MMA history, things that could have gone differently and reshaped the way that we think about MMA. We'll talk about that, but we'll also do a couple of interviews this week. This week, I'm talking about two fighters from Unified MMA 45, a very fun card happening up in Alberta, Canada this weekend. First, I'll be talking to Elmi Aronoff as he gets prepared to make his first fight outside of Israel. And I'm going to be also talking to his opponent a little bit later on. That's Marius Shaskevich, who is getting ready, obviously, to fight Aronoff. And in a very exciting fashion, a guy coming back from the Contender Series with two quick finishes. So both guys looking to get themselves into the big show. And, of course, we'll get to all that great content for you right after this quick word from our sponsors. Because this episode of the Top Turn MMA podcast is brought to you by Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas is the home for the avid sports better, providing insights, analysis, and free betting picks. It's like YouTube for sports betting. Head on over to Better Than Vegas, where you can browse, search, and follow handicappers and sports personalities as they give you their thoughts on upcoming contests in every sport imaginable. In fact, if you head on over there for each and every UFC card, me and Shockwave Dave are going to give you our bonus play that you can only find on the Top Turtle MMA page at betterthan.vegas. Better Than Vegas brings you this episode of the Top Turtle MMA podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and joining me today is Eli Aronoff, who fights Marius Koshuskevich at United MMA 45 on May 27th. So, Eli, I wanted to start by talking about the fact that, you know, all of your professional fights so far have been in your home of Israel. What is it like getting ready for a fight across the sea in Canada? Yeah, so first of all, it's, it's exciting. Though. There's no doubt about it. But I fought in, uh, in Bellator. It was in Israel, but I, I fought in Bellator and there was a 10,000 uh, people crowd over there. So there were, the arena was crazy and the environment, like the organization, every, everything was like, you know, super, super crazy. So I'm, I'm not exciting in the end, you know, you, you, go, you go inside the cage and it's you and your opponent locked in inside the cage. The, the crowd and everything, it doesn't really matter. It's fight, fight is fight. And I'm focusing on my fight and I'm focusing on my skills. And I never been ready like that before. And also I can say that I'm I'm professional wrestler since 12 years old. So I've been all around the world a lot before and I competed uh, a lot before outside of my homeland uh, of Israel. Absolutely. And, and we'll talk about that fight and all of that experience in a moment. But I, I did want to ask you about that Bellator fight, too, because obviously, you know, you fought in Bellator. You had a great performance. I, I thought you looked phenomenal in that fight. 
And obviously it didn't stick. You didn't stay with Bellator. Is there a reason why? Was it just that they were coming to Israel and you wound up on that card? Or was there another reason you didn't stay with Bellator? Uh, the, reason, uh, the reason is that I, I aim for the UFC. My dream and my goal is to, to be a UFC champion. And my aim is to get to the UFC and first to get to the UFC, then to become their middleweight champion. And Bellator is... It was a great, great experience. I'm thankful for the opportunity for, you know, for everything. But there are the, you cannot like be in Bellator and be in UFC, you know, there are competitors. So that's the, the only reason. That makes a lot of sense. And, and obviously with this fight being on the UFC's fight pass, not only does it bring you a little bit extra exposure, but it, it's kind of right in the path to the UFC. I feel like, is that something that you took into account when taking this fight in, in sort of, you know, for the first time getting out of your, your comfort zone in terms of professional MMA? Yeah, yes, of course. It's, it's a big fight. It's a big opportunity. Uh, big risk, big opportunity. I, I cannot deny it. Marwez, he fought on the contender series. He's very tough, dangerous fighter. But you know, you know how they said: the bigger the risk, the bigger the bigger the reward. It's if I when I win this fight, it, it's it's one step closer to my dream to to becoming a UFC fighter and later on to become a UFC champion. So I know it's dangerous fighter. I know it's risky, but I think it's worth it. it. It's a big stage, big big opportunity. UFC fight pass. A lot of eyes gonna be there. You know what I'm saying? And if I win this guy because of how who he is and how he's serious and that he almost got to the UFC, if I win this guy, that's a statement. You know what I'm saying? So that's really great. Absolutely. And, and you've talked a couple of times in there about that ultimate goal of being the UFC. But I, I'm curious because, you know, you, you come from Israel. You, you said you're a, a guy who started as a wrestler when you were only 12 years old. And, and you know, like that was your base to start. And there's really not a ton of professional MMA guys or at least professional MMA guys who have reached the UFC and Bellator like that from Israel. So how was it that you became really into MMA and, and that being your dream? Yeah, actually, I was an, an athlete in wrestling. I started Greco-Roman wrestling since I started judo since six years old. I started uh, be, being an athlete at judo. Then the close the I, I lived I living I'm living in a small town in Israel called Arad, so they closed the judo over there, and then my, my father said no you must to continue with sport I'm asking for some something else to you to train, and then he said you're going for wrestling and I start to training in wrestling, and then after I train in wrestling I become a high very high level like I I am six times uh, Israel championship champion in a Greco-Roman wrestling. And uh, I went for European championship multiple times outside the country to international tourniers. So I've had, I had a lot of experience. Then I got to the, to the stage in life that you have like uh, army in Israel. You, you have to go to army. And I, I went for the army and I, I was a military soldier over there, also a commander, not, not only a soldier, also a commander in the army. And in the end of the army, I got some injury. I've made a surgery, small surgery. And I started to be like more like a offline soldier. And I started to have more time. And my, my brother, my bigger brother, 
he's gonna be in my corner this Friday. He also a professional fighter and trains a lot, and he he knows a thing in MMA. So he 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 started to train before me, and he 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 said me like you are an uh, an sportsman all your life. You're a wrestler. You've done judo. Like I'm training in some new place, uh, MMA place called called Spirit. The place is very serious. The coach is very serious. You should give it a try. And then, meanwhile, I'm in the army. I joined there and started training MMA. And the second I went out from army, after three months since I was finished the army, I've done my first uh, MMA fight, my first professional fight. Three months after the after I I finished my serve at the army. <clears throat> so so it and seems then, like it was ar- and, always designed for you. you. You felt like as soon as you were out of the army, it made perfect yeah, sense just to get right the into fire. It. The fire just, you know, after after I started doing MMA, like the fire in me just get a bigger and bigger. And the first fight, I won the first fight and I wanted more. And after the second fight, I already knew like, yeah, this is going to be my life. I'm going to be a professional mixed martial arts. I'm, I'm going to get to the UFC and I'm going to be UFC champion. Like that's that's at the very beginning of, of the sport when I started doing MMA. Well, that is very impressive. Now, you, you mentioned the judo, you mentioned the wrestling, and obviously when we see you in the cage, we see a lot of those skills in there, right? Like you have been very dominant with your top pressure. You've been very dominant with your submissions and your ground and pound and all of that kind of stuff. Very clearly stems from your, your judo and your wrestling background. But the guy you're fighting is could not be more different, right? Marius is a guy who you know likes to sprawl and likes to throw punches and likes to go for those knockout blows. How do you feel about fighting somebody who is so different from you in styles here? I'm exciting, bro. I'm so exciting. That's you know the this the the whole thing you know the the it's dangerous guy and he's I I love the challenge you know I'm not a guy who picking easy fights or something like that even the original opponent Bachler KB Bachler UFC ex UFC fighter like. Also, dangerous striker, and Marez, of course, he's very dangerous. Strong hands, like to throw crazy punches, you know, to knock out people. But the danger, the 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 challenge, that's what keeps me alive, you know. That's that's the that's where I'm signed for. Uh, that's I like the 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 challenge. I like the dangerous. That's what I'm doing it for. I, I'm really I'm extreme man, you know. If if it's not dangerous, if it's not excitement, if it's not challenge. I'm not signing it, you know. I I like it. I accept the challenge. That's that's the the way I I I see it, you know. I know I'm I know everything about him. I know he's dangerous, but I know what I'm capable. I know the work I'm done, and I know what I'm capable and who I am, and I believe in myself. And the the rest you're gonna see Friday night. Well, give us a little preview of Friday night. I usually like to ask my fighters for a prediction. So do you have a prediction? How do you see this one ending on Friday night? I'm going to finish this guy. I can tell you this one. I'm not, I'm not leaving it to the, to the judges because this is his hometown. We are over here in Canada. I'm the guy who came in like from Israel, from nowhere. And he, this is his hometown. I cannot leave it to the judges. You know, that's not my mentality. It's going to be finish i'm gonna finish this guy i'm gonna win this fight and it's gonna be dominant i have to do it dominant like that's the only way i see it 
Well, we're looking forward to it. Now, before I go, you know, you've mentioned explicitly, you know, you, you feel like your destiny is UFC champion being in the UFC and, you know, with this win, you will be six and zero, and not just six and zero, but six and zero with a win over a guy in the contender series who's, you know, ten and one in his career, seen as one of the best middleweight prospects in all of Canada. How close do you think this puts you? Do you think this win here could put you in the UFC contender series, something like that, or do you think you're planning on building up a couple more after this one? Yeah, definitely. Um, look, this this because of I didn't fought a lot outside of Israel. So also, I really want to, it's like, I feel it's like my test, you know, it's like my, my, my improvement to see like, am I, how am I a UFC level fighter, how far I am or where we stand, you know, because of that, I like it. I like this fight because I'm going to show everybody who I am and what I'm capable of. And I am going to show it that I'm a UFC caliber fighter. But if you ask me, I still want to, after this fight, maybe another one fight and then contender series or something like that. I still want to like, when you get to the UFC, it's your prime time. You know, you like, you need to be at your best of your best. Everything need to be at on point. You need to, to put your performance of the life. You need there in the UFC. There's no time for games for play. You, you have to win. You have to give a show because if not, they're going to kick you out. There's no games over there. So I want to make sure when I got to the UFC, I'm fully prepared and fully ready to make my run to towards the, to the championship, towards the middleweight championship. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you make that first step coming up this Friday. Once again, fans, this was Eli Aronoff, who fights Mariusz Shaskevich at Unified MMA 45. That fight on May 27th. Eli, thank you so much for the time. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. I appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Ellie Aronoff. I, once again, am Daniel Gubby-Freeland, joined now by my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, the UFC is off this weekend, but of course we have so much to talk about from last weekend, including Holly Holm getting beat by a kind of controversial split decision. Uh, how did you see that one going? You know, I need to go back and watch it, um, but at the time... Don't, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. that. Nobody should do that. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is fair. At the time, I will just say I thought Holly did enough to win, but at the same time, being very underwhelmed by the fight, and you know, to be quite honest, maybe not fully paying attention and like scoring it at home. Eh, you know, I wasn't. Eh, this did not change my opinion so much on on any fighter or any judging. I mean, we've had this issue for a number of years, so it is what it is. If you want me to give an informed who actually won it, I would need to go back and watch it again. What did you think live? You know, I, I think while I watched it live, I was like, this feels like Holly's controlling it. And I think even the the broadcast was saying that. But also I kept thinking to myself, like, anybody who was ever getting hit, it was like Holly getting hit hard, which is actually how you're supposed to score the fights. At the end of the day, you know, like calling anything like that a robbery is just kind of like not doing it justice because, you know, like it, it was close, right? Like Holly clearly won rounds one and five, Ketlin two and four, uh, yep. and then flip a coin on three. Yeah. So, so like, at, at the, and, and the judges saw it that exact way too, right? Like they get, they were agreed completely on four rounds and then split on round number three. So, yeah, it's not a robbery. I, I will say this though, it, it's kind of upsetting to me because you said that it, it was a lackluster fight. I caught myself looking at my phone a couple of times mm -hmm. during the fight. It, it it's sort of disappointing because 
it, it leaves us without any, like, real challenger at Bantamweight, which maybe isn't that big of a problem, being that, you know, Amanda Nunes is about to fight Juliana Pena again. She wins. You know, maybe they roll back that trilogy. But, like, both Ketlin Vieta and, and Holly Holm, you know, not that Holly Holm hasn't gotten her shot, but, like, both of them would be viable candidates to fight Juliana Pena should she get out of this unscathed. They would be viable candidates to fight Amanda Nunes if she does go out there and, like, hurt Juliana Pena so she can't get the immediate trilogy. Like, they're both good fighters, but, like, at the same time, I, I think they did themselves a disservice and wind up neither of them getting anywhere near close to a title shot following that performance. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it's good that the next title challenger is there in the former champion and goat. So that kind of buys the UFC sometime and people can rebuild their stock at the same time. I mean, if Caitlin Vieira off a controversial decision, you know, at the very least controversy creates cash. Her name is in the news just because of this. It wouldn't be the end of the world to me. If she got the shot, it wouldn't be the end of the world to me. If Holly Holm got the shot, she's 40. I mean, if we're talking about a title shot in early 2023 at this point, or maybe late 2022, now's kind of the time to strike on Holly's brand in the UFC anyway. So I don't know. I guess I'm underwhelmed by that division a little bit. I was underwhelmed by the fight, and I almost wasn't underwhelmed by the controversy because I'm just so used to it. Here's a question. Do you know judges are actually given live stats as we see on the broadcast? My understanding is they're not. They are not, and I I will say this because I've seen some people point out that they think they should have access to those. I actually don't think they should because you know in the case this case right here where I think Ketlin Vieta won, and, and even going back and watching the third round, I didn't punish myself and watch all five rounds, but I went back and watched the third round. I think she won it, and I would say this like I think the stats are are wildly misleading here, right? Like she. She did land more punches, right? Holly Holm landed way more punches. But that nowhere in the scoring criteria does it say number of punches contributes to scoring. It says, you know, impact and damage. And, like, at the end of the day, Ketlin Vieta might have landed 50 less strikes or 80 less strikes or whatever it was. But, like, it, there's no doubt about who did more damage in, in two or three of those rounds in Ketlin Vieta. So, like... Yeah, like, I, I know they're not given those stats, and I know that people have floated that as an idea to fix it, but at the bottom line is, like, I don't even think that fixes what we're talking about. In fact, I think it probably creates worse scorecards. I, see, I've always been a proponent of different judges, maybe in different locations. So maybe you even have th – first of all, I think much like, uh, you know, a presiding body of a court – uh, I always think more the better. So rather than three judges, I'd love like nine judges. And I wouldn't mind having three at home with access to stats and six in the arena. Um, but, you know. And maybe like an overhead judge, like somebody who can see it from up top I, and, and somebody who's seeing it from an aerial view. that would and, be and very cool. on the ground. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, yeah. I, I think it would definitely change things. I, I, whether or not we get better scorecards, I, I'd love to see like a test run of it before we, you know, dove into it, of course. And that'll be the final thing we'll say on this, Gumby, which is you see MLB tweaking their rules all the time in the minors. UFC uh, still has a good relationship with some feeder leagues. I mean, that would be the place if they could work with the athletic commissions, obviously, I know it's not perfectly analogous, but, you know, experiment with it. You know, do five judges in ring of combat and let's see how that comes out. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think the big the big piece there, like you said, is the commissions, right? Because 
uh, I believe it's Missouri. Is it Missouri or Kansas? One of those two uh, already does open scoring where you can see the score. The fighters get to know the score after every round. Um, And I know some people have floated that as a solution. It's not a solution for bad judging, so I, I don't know why I even brought it up. But, like, some commissions are opening to testing things already, so like find the ones that do and, and start to work with them. That's all we're saying. Just experiment, people. All right, let's get to what brought us to the dance here. It's our favorite segment on the show. Well, tied for our favorite segment. It's a combat countdown, and this week we're talking about the biggest what-ifs in MMA history. What if, blank? Well, we'll tell you that in a second. But, Gumby, before I do, or before we do, one may wonder if this combat countdown is sponsored by anyone. Absolutely. This Combat Countdown is brought to you by Maroon Social, M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jiu-jitsu, or any other martial art, you can use Maroon Social to log your training sessions, tag your training partners, log competitions, weigh-ins, and so much more. Ditch that dirty jiu-jitsu journal and get yourself Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. All right, let's start with a couple of quick hitter honorable mentions because I think our top five is very strong, and we, of course, want to hear your feedback at Top Turtle MMA. Let us know if we got this list right. Um, But as an honorable mention goes, quick what-ifs here, Gumby. What if Anderson Silva didn't clown around with Chris Weidman back in, uh, I think that was July of 2013 or maybe 2014? Uh, No, I think it was 13. Uh, Where does Anderson land had he not clowned around on Weidman. Yeah, dude, that that's like a huge what if for me, because like I know a lot of people thought Weidman was going to win that fight anyway, you know, and, and obviously he wins the rematch, but even that is kind of marred in controversy in its own right. Like if he went in there and had a, a classic Anderson Silver performance, did what he did to Weidman to, uh, or to Shale Sonnen to Weidman, you know, like, dude, who knows how long that dude would have lasted on top, and who knows what kind of star he would have made when, when eventually losing to somebody, too. Yeah, uh, another great one, GSP, let's say he didn't retire in November of 2013, uh, or let's just say Hendricks um, won. Let's say Hendricks won and GSP didn't retire. What does the 170-pound division look like? I'll take this one real quick, Gumby. I think if... We say Hendricks won and GSP didn't retire. You get immediate rematch right away. I think GSP was the better all-around mixed martial artist than Hendricks. I get that Hendricks hit harder. I love GSP won that fight, to be quite honest with you. I know that's controversial, but he did you know, mess up uh, GSP's face, and it goes back to the, the damage discussion that got this whole show started, our conversation started. So I think that I see GSP reclaiming his title. And then if you go through the 2015 era, you know, I, he's going to beat Robbie Lawler, in my opinion. He would beat Carlos Condit in a rematch, although I would love to see that. I'm sure it would be close again. Condit had that head kick in their first fight. But that being said, what interests me the most would be what happens when it's Rory shot at the title, and then you have the two TriStar guys. There's a fight that would have been awesome to see Rory against GSP. Yeah, and here's another thing I'll throw out there, too, though. If GSP had just lost that straight up, you know who is the middleweight champ at that time? It was Anderson Silva. Uh, yep. It was Anderson's. It was Anderson Silva right before he lost to Weidman. I mean, we could combine two of these what ifs. What if both of those guys? You know, what if he doesn't clown Chris Weidman and, and instead knees his head off, and then GSP loses to to Hendricks? Hey, we might have gotten that fight that we always wanted. The super fight that never was. Uh, all right, and here's the last one. We'll just finish up on what if Cole Conrad didn't get into Melt Futures. <laughs> Yeah, I got to I got to throw out I had to put Cole Conrad in there and and for those of you who don't know Cole Conrad, former Bellator heavyweight champ, 
completely dominant, one of Brock Lesnar's best training partners, uh, and he quit MMA because it didn't pay well enough and got into trading milk futures on the stock exchange. So, uh, yeah, what if we didn't lose one of the best uh, heavyweights of all time, maybe one of the best heavyweights of all time, I of course say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, to, to, to milk futures? <laughs> Uh, I love it. Let's get to the actual top five. So here's the official top five. Insert sound effect. Ring the bell. Ding, ding. Let's go with our biggest uh, top five what ifs in MMA. And starting with number five, it's what if the Gracies had picked someone else other than Hoist? And to give a little background to this, knowing that the UFC was going to be the greatest promotional commercial and tool for Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they purposely picked Hoist, you know, 160 pounds soaking wet, the skinniest, least muscular guy that would be in the tournament. Perfect uh, commercial for what the art of BJJ was. And they obviously picked right because, of course, um, Hickson was there. Hickson looked like a tough guy. He looked like a comic book hero. We've had our DV on the show talk about this choice and how it was purposeful. But if they had picked someone else, and let's just say for argument's sake, because this was the closest one it could have been, had they picked Hickson and Hickson just won looking like a badass, I think BJJ still gets its due. I think it still breaks down the karate industrial complex that existed in 1993. What do you say? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think the reason why it's obviously in the what is list is I don't know the answer, right? Like, I think if Hickson was in there, and, and I did put it on this list thinking of Hickson as well. So I think if Hickson's on this list and, and he's the one who does it, does it sort of break down karate? Maybe a little bit, but maybe also people just write off that first UFC as it was just like a big hulking dude just squeezing somebody in uh, in doesn't actually attribute it to all the skills that go into what jiu-jitsu is. So, you know, maybe it does, but at the same time, maybe it doesn't. Maybe people just write it off as, like, the biggest guy in the tournament. Because, like, he was bigger than, than Shamrock, right? Like, More or less, there, yeah. there's no Tall, doubt about taller, that. Taller, like, for sure. Taller, for sure. Yeah, taller and, and pro, you know, maybe not as roided up, but, like, you know, like a big dude. So, you know, maybe people just write it off as, like, the biggest looking strong guy in that competition wins. And, and man, what a disservice that would do. You know, I think for me, there are two things going on here, though. And I always go back to the way UFC used to promote, and still to this day, having some roots in the professional wrestling tradition of gimmickry, if you will. You know, uh, what's his name? One glove, our Jimerson, the boxer, yeah. came out with a boxing glove, LOL. And then in the finals, beating, you know, Gerard Gradeau, who was a badass in his own right, but wearing that more traditional, you know, the karate pants, uh, I think just Hickson in this hypothetical scenario, beating someone in a boxing glove, beating someone in the karate pants, it still makes the statement of what grappling is. But you know, not as effective. They obviously picked right. But that being said, by the time you get to UFC two or three, you could still match Hickson up with someone, you know, I, Patrick Smith, for instance, was probably bigger than Hickson eye for eye. So I think it still gets the point across. That's my feeling, but it's a great what if. Yeah, and it might it might get the point across, but just take longer to do it. Exa yeah, exactly. All right, we'll get then to number four. So, you know, back in the early 2000s to mid to late 2000s, 
there were three very strong MMA brands, uh, UFC, Pride, and then Strikeforce, WEC to a lesser extent. But certainly UFC, Pride were viewed as the top two. So let's just go down this rabbit hole. What if Pride, Strikeforce, WEC never folded? Does UFC still become the global juggernaut that it did? I say yes, but it's going to be a very different path. What say you? Yeah, and it, it's a weird one for me, too, because, I, you know, the reason I thought about this one in the first place was is that, like, Pride was popular because, don't get me wrong, it had a different rule set, and it was in Japan, and had all the backing of all of those markets and stuff like that. And really, like, not that, that Ryzen doesn't have Japan on its side, but it's certainly not the same juggernaut that Pride was, and I think it's just because it lost a lot of its steam when Pride closed up shop and... People moved on to different things. I know kickboxing's pretty big over there as well. They got a big kickboxing match coming up. But, like, uh, you know, like, I think they lost some of their market and are now trying to regain it. So the fact that Pride would have stuck around, I think it would have done damage to the UFC. And the other thing is I think it catered to a mildly different audience, right? Because it had the pro wrestling intros. It, it had, you know, Len Hart screaming into the microphone before fights and stuff like that. Like, that kind of stuff sold well. So... It would have been interesting because it is, like, very antithetical to what the UFC does, where it's, like, very focused on the brand and looking commercial and looking like a, uh, you know, like they, they say they want to be the NFL of MMA. So, uh, you know, like it, they have everything looking very uniform. Would they have even gone down the Reebok path or the Venom path if, you know, Pride was out there being wacky I, still. I, I think it might have changed that those types of things. I, I, so I actually have a personal story to insert here uh, just on the relevance of what Pride was in the year 2006, 2007. I was working for Fox Sports at the time. They called an all-hands meeting talking about the direction of what properties Fox Sport was going to be getting, and obviously the NFL was king. That was their closest, you know, uh, I guess – uh, sports partner at the time, but what else would they do, especially for a very struggling Fox Sports Net brand? What would they do? And the president of Fox Sports at the time, George Greenberg, said, we're going big on pride. It's Japan's answer to the UFC, which the UFC was just getting a lot of recognition. If you remember, UFC actually had a very close partnership with Fox back in like 2003, four, five, like the er, right at the early days of Zufa, and then went a different direction to Spike. So this was going to be Fox Sports' answer, their MMA league. And I remember George Greenberg, the head of Fox Sports, saying they make WWE look like a bad uh, 16-year-old's birthday party when it comes to pyrotechnics and music. And I think I really do believe this had pride knocked on, you know, the way of the Yakuza and had all the problems they had had Fox Sports aligned with pride. You would have a different, you know, I, I guess, market share even in the U.S. for the UFC. Yeah, I, I think you're right, too. And I, like I said, I, th I think it just hit a different audience. So also being on Fox may have just reached that audience better. Um, let's move then. I could talk about that one all day. I almost think we should do a what if on had pride stuck around. Uh, but that being said, let's move on. What if DJ Mighty Mouse had gotten the split decision win over Cejudo? Where would the UFC be? Where would the flyweight division be? And obviously going down this thought path, DJ does not get, you know, traded to one here. Yeah, and I think that that's the key, right? Because at the end of the day, 
not only did this change Demetrius Johnson's trajectory, it changed Ben Askren's trajectory. It changed Henry Cejudo turned into the king of cringe. Maybe that never happens. Um, maybe he never walks away from the Bantamweight division and we don't see Aljamain Sterling pop up as a champ and Piotr Jan. And I mean, the, the 80 good fights we've had at the top of the Bantamweight division with Corey Sanhagen and, and Jose Aldo, we, we don't see a lot of those. And the megastar that is Jorge Masvidal, whether you like him or not, or whether you think he's a top fighter or not, his megastardom comes from this moment, right? Like, it, like DJ getting traded and Ben Askren eating that knee is what made Jorge Masvidal what he is today. So, uh, you know, it's so like th- there's so many dominoes that fall with this one, which is part of the reason I love it so much. But, like, yeah, like you really have to wonder, would we just still be seeing DJ, you know, outpoint... I, so- Alessandre Pantoja and Brandon Moreno. I actually think, you know, there's some metaphor to be made here. The medicine is worse than the cure. I don't fucking know. Sometimes you have to kill Frankenstein for a society to grow. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but what I'm trying to say is it was almost the best thing for the flyweight division that the dominant, albeit somewhat boring in a way to the casual fan, left and a new crop of fighters were able to come up. Uh, just to me, had DJ just kept winning and winning and winning and then maybe never coming up to 135, it, talk, there were talks of, you know, destroying the flyweight division at the time. If he kept winning, that those talks weren't going to go away. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And, and the fact that we can now talk about, like, five different guys in the division as being potential champs, but we never had that before, right? Like, right now, Figueredo is champ. Moreno has been champ, and some might argue he, he could still be champ at this time. You know, Kaikara France is fighting for an interim title. Could totally see him winning that. You know, Brandon Royval's not that far away. Alexandre Pantoja's in the mix. Askar Askarov, granted, coming off the loss to, to Kaikara France, is right there. Like, we're, we're talking about, like, six, seven guys here you know, Manel Cap, I'll throw in there too. Like, all reasonably could be champion within the next year. That's the best thing that could happen for a division. All right. I'm so excited about our final top two. You could kind of flip flop them. I mean, they're both huge what ifs. We'll say we're going into our final round here, Gumby. So, bell ring, insert sound effect, ding ding. We have five minutes to break these two mega what ifs down. Number two, what if Rhonda didn't become a star? and forced the UFC's hand to bring in female fighting. Because let's all remember, about a year before she finally came to the UFC, maybe 18 months, two years, Dana White was quoted as saying he would never have women fighting, but Ronda forced his hand. So what would the UFC look like right now had Ronda not been that star and forced the UFC's hand? Would we even have a women's division? You know, I think we would have eventually. I think somebody was always going to come around and force that hand. Like, I, I don't think it, she was some sort of megastar that that was, you know, unavoidable. And I, I mean, like, ultimately she became that thing. But I, I think there was going to be somebody to step in. Now, she had the look. She had the attitude. She had the judo background. She was finishing everybody quick. I think it accelerated things, which is good. Um, you know, people talk about her being like the mother of, you know, women's MMA, which isn't fair to all the ones who came before her and probably should have broke that door down earlier. But like what she did in the way that she did it forced their hands. I think somebody still comes along and does it. Hey, maybe it's later. Maybe it's after Invicta already pops up and we get a star out of there. You know, maybe it's somebody like Cyborg who, who came along later. Uh, but the bottom line is, is like she forced the hand when she did and, and, I think the sport got a chance to grow for women 
a lot earlier because of her. Yeah, I agree completely. I think someone else would have come along. I think just their their business model and extracting the most revenue out of TV rights deals calls for a lot of freaking cards. How do you fill cards? You need more divisions. Okay, you have every men's division possible. There aren't a lot of 100-pound men. You can't go down. You're not going to go up. So it's kind of natural that you would then look to the female side and you could, you know, populate really, you know, four, wink, wink, nod, nod, but three pretty flushed out divisions that help fill your cards for your TV rights partners. So I agree. Yeah, and you could get a you could get a fourth if you added Adam Wade, like a fourth real one, because yeah, Adam Wade has got enough, yeah. got enough women in the world right now. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. All right, numero uno. <laughs> this is a fun one. What if Brock Lesnar in all his dominant fashion at the time, did not get diverticulitis. What does the UFC look like? What does the heavyweight division look like? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the bottom line is, is just like if Brock doesn't get diverticulitis, like he beat Reigns as champion a little bit longer, right? Like, I, I'm not sure it would work forever because like we said, he's not a great boxer. He's never been a great boxer and he probably would have, you know, eventually ceded to somebody who could outbox him or, or stuff his wrestling. But, dude, like, I think he could have survived a lot of those JDS, Cain Velasquez onslaughts, right? Like, he didn't, and we talk about him losing to Overeem and stuff like that, but I think a lot of that was due to the toll it took on his body, right? Like, he just didn't train like he did. He didn't look like he did anymore. Uh, man, I think he lasts longer. I think he probably makes them tons more money I... and maybe even makes UFC larger. But, like, uh, other than that, I, I, I'm not sure what becomes of his legacy at the end of all. Yeah. So I, you you said it perfectly, so I'm almost just going to repeat what you said, but I just I feel very strongly about this. I think it did affect him. I still think Cain Velasquez would have won eventually. I think any striker would have won eventually. It was a problem in his game, but he could have scratched and clawed and toughed his way through one or two more of those high-profile fights. He. The bottom line, though, from a revenue standpoint – from a brand awareness standpoint, imagine, you know, it was Kane versus JDS, albeit very fun fight for when the Fox finally got the UFC back in their, in their hands in 2011. Imagine if that was Brock Kane in the rematch. I mean, Brock, Brock Lesnar is a star and that did a massive rating, but now we're talking about like an even bigger rating because it's Brock and he's a TV personality and star. JDS loves the guy, not so much. So that's where this becomes such a fun what if, because, you know, the UFC, they got the Fox deal. And then luckily for them, a brash talking Irishman came around about two years later and they finally gave into women's MMA and Rhonda was a, you know, Hollywood star in the making two years later, but had Brock been there to fill that gap, you know, maybe they're reaching even more mainstream success sooner. Absolutely. You, you said it perfectly. All right. Well, we're happy with that list. You let us know if you were happy with that list. At Top Turtle MMA on Twitter and IG, we love to hear your feedback, both good and bad. We're open like that. All right, Gumby, this train is a moving. Where do we go next? All right, well, we're going to transition now to my interview with Marius Shashevitz. I'm going to mess that dude's name up 700 times. It's not easy to say, but he is easy to talk to, and he's got a great interview about his upcoming fight at Unified MMA 45 this Friday. So make sure you check that interview out right now. 
Alright, and joining me today is Marius Shuskevich, who fights Ellie Aranoth at Unified MMA 45. That fight is on May 27th. So, Marius, I wanted to start here. This is an insanely quick turnaround for you. You were fighting just a month removed from your LFA 130 headliner. What made you make the decision to jump back in there so quick when, when KB Buller pulled out of this fight? Well, you know what? Um, you know, I only took a couple of days off, you know, after the fight. The fight was super quick. You know, it was about 90 seconds long. Um, there was no injuries. I was in great shape. And, um, you know, when an opportunity comes around, you don't uh, you don't turn it around. You don't take Sorry, you don't uh, turn it down, especially when, you know, you're you're in fight shape already. That makes a lot of sense to me, but also I'll just throw this out there. You know, you're a guy who just came off of a headliner of LFA, one of the biggest regional promotions out there. You have that fantastic finish. A lot of times that's a call to a bigger organization. Some people would see this as sort of risking the spot that you might have just gotten a call to, you know, back to Contender Series or, you know, to Bellator or something like that. Did that ever cross your mind or was it just, I'm in good shape, I'm a fighter who needs to fight and I'm getting in there? You know, I love fighting. Um, early, earlier in my career, I had like long layoffs and that wasn't because, you know, I wanted them, you know? So I've always wanted to be an active fighter. Um, you know, I called out Dana White after that fight and all the UFC matchmakers, we didn't get that call, you know, so I'm not going to wait around and, and, you know, sit on the bench, you know, hoping that I get that call. So, you know, it's time to take another impressive, uh, impression and, uh, that's what I'm going to do Friday night. Well, we're looking forward to it. Now, I did want to ask you about the lead-up to this a little bit because, like you said, you were in great shape. You didn't take very much damage. You took a couple of days off. What has camp been like for you, though? Because you you pretty much just go right back into camp after this, right, to prepare for, for Ellie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went right back into camp, and, um, you know, we talked to my you know, strength conditioning coach, Cole Vincent, um, and, you know what, we essentially – made huge strides in, in everything, you know, with our conditioning, with our, I was already in amazing shape. I'm uh, even in, you know, exponentially better shape for this fight. So, you know, we're uh, experimenting here and, and um, it's going to be amazing, man. Man, I'm I, excited. I, I love that mentality. Now I got to ask too, though, because if you're preparing, you know, two fights that close to one another, it's good that you've got a strength and conditioning coach. Cause I'm just worried about the weight cut, right? Like you're a huge guy. You're six foot three for a middleweight. That, that's not a little dude. Is it hard for you to make that weight cut? Is it, are you, are you in good, you know, weight shape as far as uh, that goes? You know what? <clears throat> I'm a huge middleweight. Like that last, um, that last fight, I was I was in the cage at 212 pounds. Oh man! You know? <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I'm a huge weight, uh, huge middleweight. The weight cut is hard, but I've, but again, you know, I'm a professional. I've got specialists in every area of this game, every area of of, of from striking to jiu-jitsu to MMA to training partners. Everything is specialized. You know, you know, I train like a professional. Um, I've got my nutritionist. You know, Coach TJ. And um, we're going to make the weight. It's, it's tough. It's always tough. But um, nothing good comes easy. Absolutely. Now, I, I got to ask, too, then, because he, th- that's, a, that's a huge jump in weight from 85 to 212. H- has it ever crossed your mind to, to go to light heavyweight? Or is, is, are you dead set on making middleweight your thing? You know what? It's not out of the question. I, I feel like um, 
with the way things are going, like I am getting bigger, you know, with every, with every fight camp and, and all that. Um, so it's not out of the question. I feel like, you know, in the next couple of years, yeah, I'm going to have to fight at 205, but while I can make 85, is may as, I may as well take as many fights at 85 as I can, you know? I love that. I love that. Now, before we get to talking about this fight with Aronoff, I, I do want to ask you about the Contender Series because right, right now it is the only loss in your career. And I, I know it's tough for fighters to talk about that sometimes, but you're a guy who came back from that and not just beat people, but beat people who had been on Contender Series in their own right, right? Like in Grand Park, and then you come back and win on an LFA headliner. Was it hard for you to get back into the gym and to come back out? Because I, I know it took you about a year to get back in there, but you know, you, you seem to be in a good mental space following all of that. Yeah, there was nothing, like, uh, there was no mental blocks or anything. I was pretty injured after that um, contender series fight. You know, it was a long camp, right? It was a, I signed the contract for that fight, I don't know, it was like in February or something. I didn't fight until November because it kept getting pushed back. So the camp was too long for that one individual fight. But, you know what? There was no mental blocks. You know, we just regrouped. We we analyzed the fight. You know, I still think I won that fight. Dana White thinks I won that fight. You know, and um, you know, it was just you know back to the drawing board. Train hard. When we're ready to fight, we'll we'll sign a fight. And you know, that's that's my mentality. You know, like 32 years old, I just want to compete as much as possible. I love that. I love that. Now, I'm, I am curious, too, in going back to the gym, obviously, like you said, no mental block, but coming off of a fight where you feel like you won and you don't get your hand raised, do you feel like you have tons of stuff that you have to work on from that fight, or, or was it, you know, more like... You know what, it was just it was just a motivation, you know, it was, it was a lot of fire that, that, um, that came out, out of that fight, you know what I mean, like, I was pissed off, you know, like, <laughs> man, like, I won that fight... Whether or not I would have gotten a contract, you never know. But, um, you know what? It just motivated me more to make sure, you know, it doesn't it doesn't go to the judges again, you know? Well, and so you haven't let it go to the judges again since then. And, and now I guess we should talk about this upcoming fight where you're going to attempt to do that again. You are fighting a guy in Ellie Aronoff who probably could not have much of a more different style than you, right? You guys have wildly different styles. He comes from a judo background and a wrestling background. You're a guy who sprawls incredibly well. He's got good submission skills and hands. How do you see this kind of fight playing out? What do you see him trying to do to you in in this fight? You know, I think he's going to do what he does in all his fights. You know what I mean? He tries to take it to the ground, and, and he tries to hump your leg for 15 minutes. Um, but you know what, you know, like you said, I can sprawl, I can wrestle well myself, you know, and, and I've got the knockout power, you know, and I'm a finisher and he isn't, you know, and that's the biggest difference here. Not only that, my size, you know, yeah, he fought a 205, but I mean, he was a small 205er. In my opinion, he's a small 85er, you know, so, uh, Yeah. You know, it's uh, this is going to be an exciting one. Absolutely. And before I let you go, I always do like to get a prediction. Do you have a, how this one ends on May 27th? You know, it, it doesn't um, it doesn't matter how it ends. I always try to I always try to do the same thing. I always try to finish it in the first round. You know, that's always if I don't finish it in the first round. I'm going to finish it in the second round. But my prediction is to finish it in the first round. I, I truly believe that I will finish Eli in the first round. 
All right, well, you heard it here first, folks. This has been Mario Shiskevich, who fights Ellie Aronoff at Unified MMA 45 on May 27th. Mario, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's going to do it for another episode of the Top Turn MMA podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We would not have a show without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsors, Maroon Social, and, of course, Better Than Vegas. And remember, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Top Turtle MMA, in both of those locations. Until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby-Freeland. He is Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will catch you then.